0: is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. Welcome, everyone, to the Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Alison Solowinski Vice President for Research at NBR. Over the past decade or so, the contours of the post-Cold War landscape have sharpened, with several notable developments presenting new challenges, as well as potential opportunities for countries across the Indo-Pacific. Over this period, and particularly during the past four years, governments across the region have been forced to re-examine core strategic assumptions, including reviewing their alliance relationships, their trade and economic relations with both China and the United States, and their role in international institutions and regional groupings and agreements. These are the issues that we examined in this year's volume of Strategic Asia, navigating tumultuous times in the Indo-Pacific. The book assesses the impact of three major trends on the geopolitical environment of the Indo-Pacific region over the past few years. The first of these trends is the intensifying strategic competition between China and the United States. The second is growing pushback against globalization, which is marked by a rise in economic nationalism and an increased interest in reshoring the production of critical technologies and securing supply chains. And the third trend is the still unfolding COVID-19 pandemic, which has engendered massive spending programs and interventions by governments on a scale not often seen outside of wartime. The economic, social and political reverberations of which will mark the decade to come. These three trends are colliding with and amplifying underlying changes in the relative balance of power in the Indo-Pacific that we have been examining in this program for two decades. As with past Strategic Asia volumes, this book includes chapters that address how governments throughout the Indo-Pacific are responding to and being shaped by these major forces, or not. In this episode of Asia Insight, I'll be discussing these themes with two of the volume's contributors. I'm joined today by Dr. Ashley J. Tellis and Dr. Michael Green. Ashley Tellis is a senior fellow and holds the Tata Chair in Strategic Affairs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. But, more luckily for us, he is also a counselor at MBR and the research director of the Strategic Asia program. Ashley's been a co-editor of the program's annual volume since 2004, and it's been my pleasure to work with him on the past uh, six or so volumes. Uh, Mike Green is the senior vice president for Asia, Japan chair, and Henry Kissinger chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He serves as a Director for Asian Studies at the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where I had the good fortune to first meet him as a graduate student many years ago. Mike's chapter in this volume covers Northeast Asia, including Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. So thanks so much for joining me here today, Ashley and Mike.
1: Thank you so much, Ali. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much.
0: So to start us off, I'm gonna ask Ashley to talk a bit about the topic of this year's volume. We've uh, spent the past few volumes of Strategic Asia really focused on uh, China's ambitions in various areas and the impact of US-China competition for countries in the region. So why uh, does this volume focus on these three major trends now? And maybe how do they connect, if at all, with the themes of past years that we've covered?
1: Let me answer that in the following way, Ali. In the last several years, we focused on what has been the most consequential change in global politics, which is the shifting balance of power produced as a result of China's rise. But we've always held the U.S. constant. We've always presumed that there was a fundamental stability in U.S. policy and that the changes that we witness in the world are changes that we see on the outside. Uh, In this year's volume, we tried to grapple with a new reality, at least a reality that we haven't seen in several decades, which is uh, quite fundamental change within the United States itself uh, in the way U.S. politics has evolved, in the U.S. conception of itself as an international leader, and all the changes that uh, were manifested during the Trump years. And so the volume is distinctive in that it begins to examine the impact of a changing United States on the world. And that, I think, was at the root of the tumultuousness that we saw uh, in the four years of the Trump administration. So it's not that the underlying, you know, trends that you alluded to in your introduction have changed. But there has been uh, now an intersection between these underlying trends and quite dramatic changes within the United States. And we thought that was worthy of scrutiny. And this is not even taking into account, uh, you know, the challenges posed by COVID and the pandemic and all the rest of it.
0: As you noted, uh, and the title of your chapter uh, certainly alludes to, uh, in that title, you, you label the United States a tempestuous hegemon. Uh, what are some of the factors, you've started to touch on it here, but uh, that really have earned the United States this title in relation to its role in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, you know, kind of lay out what, uh, what you see in your overview chapter as earning that title.
1: So I would say the first and most striking reality that the chapter captures, and I didn't appreciate this enough until I actually sat down to to write it, was that one could not take uh, the autonomy of foreign policy or the autonomy of grand strategy for granted anymore. You know, we've always taught as uh, graduate students uh, learning international relations, and this comes from, you know, the German school uh, of understanding politics, which is that foreign policy has a certain primacy in state behavior. Uh, States care about their environment more than anything else and they almost subjugate their domestic politics to achieve foreign policy aims. That was the sort of perceived wisdom. And what became quite apparent to me as I began to prepare this volume was that in the last four years, uh, that did not turn out to be true. That US foreign policy was becoming more and more entangled with its domestic politics. And the autonomy that one presumed U.S. foreign policy had, especially during the Cold War, uh, was becoming harder and harder to sustain. Now, domestic politics always matters, right? It's not as if domestic politics isn't present. Uh, But in the last four years, I think it has been so manifestly visible uh, in ways that we have not seen in a long time. And I would argue that that is true even today, even after Trump's departure, Uh, And you can see it in the Biden administration's approach to the world, where it is fundamentally inward looking in the first instance. Uh, It's an effort to set things right in the United States before, you know, the U.S. sort of prepares and girds itself uh, for renewed engagement with the international community. So that the primacy of the internal was something that uh, was brought home quite clearly. And because domestic politics in the last few years have, have been so contested, so confrontational within the United States. Uh, it's not surprising uh, that that uh, tempestuousness within was reflected you know, in the attitude, in the self-awareness of the United States, in, in its self-understanding of its own role. And because the US is still a hegemonic power, it still sort of oversees a broadly uh, liberal world order, uh, that had consequences. Uh, for a lot of countries, both countries that rely on us and countries that are not always friendly to us.
0: So I'm going to pivot a little bit and turn to Mike to hear some of the key themes from his chapter. In in particular, of the three trends examined across all the chapters in the volume, so the U.S.-China competition uh, slash U.S. role in the region under Trump, Uh, Deglobalization and COVID. Is there one that stands out uh, more than the others as having a major impact on the trajectory of the three Northeast Asian countries that you covered?
2: Yes, and it's the balance of power and strategic competition with China, no doubt about it. For the three countries I covered uh, Japan, Taiwan, and the Republic of Korea, South Korea is a bit of an outlier in how it responded to this growing competition compared with Japan and Taiwan, but that was the first order of business. That was the variable, if you will, the the independent variable that was, that continues to be most important in explaining state behavior. The other factors, the Trump factor, they were, it was big. Leadership matters. You know, international relations scholars tend not to look at leadership because you can't quantify it, but it mattered. And the Trump years showed that, but it was not a black and white story. In surveys we did at CSIS, we asked in 2020 who would be better at competing with China. And in, in we asked around the world, not a single European chose Trump, but half of the Indian scholars, half of the Taiwanese scholars, half of the Vietnamese scholars, three countries, by the way, in the front lines of geopolitical competition and coercion with China, and about 20% of Japanese. So Trump years were not a complete dead zone. You know, American strategy, despite all the dysfunctional and unnerving aspects of, of Trumpism, American strategy did move forward. And and Biden has continued some of the key elements uh, of that strategy for competition. Uh, so that's the most important variable. I folded in my chapter deglobalization under competition with China because the story of supply chain realignment and technology decoupling or tapering by Japan, Korea, Taiwan is really a China-U.S. story. It's, a, it's not a 360-degree technology nationalism. It's, it's about China. So it largely folds into the China narrative. And then you have COVID. And COVID is, you know, what social scientists would call an intervening variable. It wasn't determinative, but it was really illuminating and important in this region. I would say, in a macro sense, in Northeast Asia, COVID presented a legitimacy challenge for governments. And less so for Japan, Korea, and Taiwan than the US, China, South, and Southeast Asia, because all three countries had been through the mirrors and SARS. And, you know, they had in place, especially the Koreans, you know, policies and expertise and early warning and a culture of mask wearing that had them ready. To, and they did quite well. But in all three countries, they were a little too, there was an Icarus story here. They were a little too confident, a little too complacent. And they all got in trouble, all three, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, after performing excellently at first, proving, by the way, democracies can do very well in a crisis like this. They all got in trouble because of the there was some technical nationalism. And all three held out securing contracts for Pfizer and other vaccines in the hope that they could get some domestic production and domestic development. And they all paid a price for it, uh, all, all, all the leaders. And ultimately, um, COVID was a big reason why Suga had to resign. Tsai Ing-wen and in Taiwan did better. Moon jae was somewhat battered by it. But they all did better than the other countries in our study, because they were ready for this, because they'd been through earlier versions like SARS and, and MERS in particular for, uh, for the Koreans. So, you know, I would argue, actually, this was a year that clarified the contours of geopolitical competition more rather than less. There's still a lot of questions we can, we can examine, but the trends we saw in 2018-19 geopolitically didn't change fundamentally because of the other variables uh, that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great point that is interesting when we compare it to some of the other countries and subregions examined in the volume. You know, if one were to read only the Northeast Asia chapter of the volume, you might wonder if any of the three geopolitical trends the book examines had a significant significant impact in changing trajectories uh, of states in the Indo-Pacific because, as you just said, you know, it, these these trends uh, for these three countries in particular either accelerated or kind of continued to develop trends that maybe predated, uh, especially COVID, for example. So. Either uh, for Ashley or Mike, if you have any thoughts about uh, why that might be, uh, are there other countries examined here, regions, that had more of meaningful shift in their strategic thinking or planning due to some of these trends?
1: Well, let me offer two thoughts on that issue. One is that the COVID pandemic is still with us and the long-term consequences of the pandemic are still unclear. So, at least in the near term, as Mike pointed out, the immediate challenges were legitimacy to government. Um, And this was true across the region. This was true across the region. Uh, But the longer term challenge is going to be how it impacts uh, economic performance, economic growth, and then ultimately, you know, the standing of states in the system. And we have to just wait and see. It's just too early to tell what these trends will be. The little that we know about pandemics historically is that these are actually multi-decadal events. It's not something you get over, you know, within a few years, certainly not a pandemic on this scale, which is not geographically localized. And we're already seeing the first sort of fruits of those problems, right? We are seeing the supply chain Dislocations. We are seeing the rampant inflation that has come about because of central bank interventions in different countries, and so on and so forth. So, we have to wait and see what the longer term impact of the pandemic will be. I think there's a second uh, issue pertaining to globalization that's worth reflecting on, and that is although the current crises about globalization are driven by the issues of excessive dependence on China at a time when China is becoming increasingly assertive, you know, thus pushing states to think about ways of mitigating their vulnerability. The larger question about globalization is the slowdown in global trade that has occurred since the global financial crisis. Prior to the financial crisis, international trade was growing faster than trade in GDP. After the financial crisis, that trend has entirely reversed. And so it's an interesting question of whether the key countries in Asia will be able to sustain their growth rates. Now, increasingly through internal driven growth, as opposed to growth that comes because of deeper external connectivity. And we don't know the answer to that, but it is something worth watching because it does have implications for, again, the economic viability and strength of countries and their economic competitiveness.
2: So the deglobalization or the diminishing returns of globalization did really happen starting in the 2008-9 financial crisis. And what accelerated in 2020-21 was reshoring and supply chain realignment. And there were a number of factors that caused that for the economies I was looking at, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Already the cost of doing business in China, uh, wages, labor policy designed to have strikes against Korean and Japanese and Taiwanese firms, but not Chinese, forced intellectual property rights transfer, some of it macroeconomic, some of it political, was already pushing all three economies to invest a lot more in Southeast Asia, South Asia and especially the US and move supply chains. The Trump administration and then Biden administration Export control rules, the entities list, limiting of sensitive technology transfers accelerated that further. And then COVID, you know, created opportunities for reshoring. And the Japanese in particular, but the other governments encouraged and even funded uh, reshoring. It's not a complete decoupling. A rough estimate I hear frequently from CEOs of tech companies in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan is about a third of their supply chains have moved out of China pretty quickly over the last few years because of these factors. But they're still in China, because that's where the money is a lot of it. And so it's not such an abrupt change as sometimes advertised, but it is a new trend. And the thing to watch going forward is how much and how effectively will the Biden administration harness that trend to create harmonized export control rules and greater collaboration on you know, semiconductor fabrication, AI, and so forth. There is a very compelling piece of legislation, uh, two of them, USIka and the CHIPS Act, that would do that broad support in Congress, they can't get it through because of our dysfunctional politics. But I think there's an opportunity there for the Biden administration to really harness this to the advantage of our national security and our economy.
0: I really, I want to return to uh, some of the points on Biden administration policy in a minute, but before we do, uh, to circle back to a point that both of you touched on when we were talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on states across the region and in Northeast Asia, you raised that it really was a challenge, a potential challenge in the case of Northeast Asia, for the legitimacy of leadership in all all three of the Northeast Asian countries and the other regions that we examine in the volume, and the three countries in Northeast Asia perhaps weathered that better than some. Uh, So my question would be for Ashley on the one hand, how did some of the other leadership or governments in the region that we've examined handle the legitimacy challenges of COVID-19? And for Mike, how might some of the effects of The vaccination challenges that you mentioned, how might that play out for some of the new leadership coming in in some of these countries? So there's a a new government in Japan already. South Korea is having an election later this year. And there will still be, as Ashley noted, COVID is with us for a while. There will still be challenges facing these administrations. Uh, So be interested to hear kind of how that would be playing out for these new
1: administrations. I think the impact of COVID on leadership legitimacy is, it presents a mixed picture when you look outside of Northeast Asia. For example, if you look at India and Russia, the impact on leadership legitimacy was actually quite minimal, but for different reasons in each case. In the case of India, Modi has extraordinary levels of public support in a second term, even though very clearly mistakes were made in the management of the pandemic and Russia's authoritarian system does not give us a very clear picture about the real impacts on legitimacy but it doesn't seem to have it doesn't seem to have hurt Putin and his hold on power in any significant ways in Southeast Asia the picture was more concerning because depending on the countries you looked at different leaderships fell victim at least transiently to their inability to manage the pandemic but Today, when one looks back, the pandemic has really now seen more and more as an act of nature. And social systems across the world have found ways to cope with it. And so my expectation is that the long run consequences are going to be less on legitimacy and more on economic performance. That is economies that are more resilient and can cope with dislocations that have mechanisms that allow them to overcome whatever challenges the pandemic brings. Those economies obviously will do better than the rest, and that will have implications for the regional balance of power. But that is a long-run story. There will be vicissitudes along the way, depending on the spikes that different countries face from the pandemic at, at different points in time. So in
2: a comparative perspective, the the Japanese, Korean, and Taiwanese economies have that wherewithal, have that resilience, have that technology advantage. And although all three economies struggle to some extent, I don't think COVID will fundamentally change the longer-term trajectory. The challenges that all three have with demographics, with rising Chinese competition, and so forth were already there, but they demonstrated in COVID that they are high-tech economies, and high-tech economies weathered this crisis much better. In terms of legitimacy, Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide fell because he couldn't manage the messaging, especially in the politics of COVID. Kishida, his successor, is much more careful. Moon jae stumbled. His party was really in a strong position going into Korea's presidential election. Now it's a toss-up. But they've stabilized their messaging. And Tsai Ing-wen has done quite well in Taiwan overall. To me, the interesting legitimacy variable we haven't touched on yet is Xi Jinping in China. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, there was an outpouring of support for the people of Wuhan from uh, Japanese citizens, Korean citizens and Taiwanese. There might have been a different arc to this history. There might have been, you know, a, a moment of reconciliation in these historic uh, rivalries, as often happens, by the way. Ashley and I were in government during the tsunami in 2004. You know, when you have these large global crises, pandemics and tsunamis and so forth, often countries overcome their differences, and build patterns of cooperation. That might have happened. The main reason it didn't was not, in my view, because of some broad techno-nationalist or, 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 or reaction. It was because of Xi Jinping. The cover-up in Wuhan, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, the coercive demands that states praise China for its effort. It's not widely publicized, but within many countries of Asia, Chinese diplomats went in and ordered governments, smaller, weaker governments, to not use Pfizer or AstraZeneca, to use uh, the Chinese vaccines, very, very aggressive. And in, 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 in part because of that, in polls across the region in Southeast Asia with the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Lowy in Australia and so forth, COVID coincides with a sharp deterioration of trust in China. And so that has accelerated some of the geopolitics in my view. And had Xi Jinping made different choices during COVID, It might not have been the same story. The geopolitical rivalry would have been there, but there was an opportunity that China completely lost to build goodwill. And in retrospect, it's not surprising. This is Xi Jinping's China. Never say you're sorry. Always demand more concessions. Focus first on domestic legitimacy. And I think COVID brought out the worst of Xi Jinpingism, and you can see it in the reactions of other countries. Everywhere in Asia now, uh, in polls, the US is much more trusted vis-a-vis China than it was before COVID. Part of that is Biden coming to power, but not all of it. So that, that to me, the Chinese crisis of legitimacy, although the Chinese are full of confidence and declaring that East is rising and the West is falling and all the rest of it, that the obvious lashing out against neighbors, you know, was not just hubris; it was insecurity about about legitimacy at home, and it it it, it affected geopolitics in my view.
0: So we've covered of the three trends. COVID quite extensively. We've touched on the US China competition and uh, deglobalization. But to return a little bit to the US China competition, because it is such a central component, as you noted, Mike, to the stories across all of these chapters. In the Northeast Asia case, the three countries you cover, they all have the distinction of being critical allies and partners of the United States. All three are democracies, um, and they're all geographically close to China, yet each of these has responded to China's increasingly assertive behavior and to the broader U.S.-China competition in different ways. What do you attribute some of those
2: differences to? Well, geography and history matters a lot. And to start with Japan, the Japanese have been competing with China in a Chinese-led system for two millennia. And Chinese um, ambitions have triggered a response in Japan that's 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 historic, which was captured by Abe's strategy of a free and open Indo-Pacific aligning with the US even more closely with Australia and India, um, strengthening ties to Europe and Southeast Asia, a balance of power strategy designed to foil Chinese ambitions. And what's so interesting is in the election Japan just had and before that in September, the leadership race for the ruling Liberal Democratic Party nobody, nobody challenged that fundamental strategic purpose and trajectory. And even the Japanese Communist Party was hawkish on China. So Japan's response is based on geography and history. A maritime power like Japan has more latitude to uh, to do that and, and to maintain a balance of power from offshore. Uh, and frankly, Japan's response has been absolutely critical. I, I would argue that the response to china's rise no country strategy has more had more influence on other countries strategies than japan's and i have a book coming out on this in march so i'm advertising the book i know but 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 the abe strategy really influenced India's strategy the u.s strategy Australia's more than any of the rest of us influenced each other over the last eight years taiwan is very divided very polarized between the you know blue and, and green camps support for unification is very low but there are pockets, important pockets, in Taiwan society that want more economic ties to China, and others that want none. So I think uh, Tsai Nguyen wen navigated that that divided polity quite well. She was helped by the example of Hong Kong, which affected every country in in East Asia at some level, including even Singapore, where a middle class and educated middle class lost their rights in front of the whole world because of Chinese coercion. So that helped Tsai. And Taiwan is moving, you know, more closely to the U.S., Japan and other maritime powers. Australia and Japan now, you see officials, cabinet members talking about defending Taiwan for the first time ever. So uh, Taiwan's benefited, but is still hampered by the domestic divisions. And Korea's interesting because Korea, you know, Japan has the Sea of Japan. Korea's got the Yalu River. Historically, Korea's, it's very hard for Korea to counterbalance a dominant Asian power because they're just so close and internally divided. And Korea's preference was a kind of strategic ambiguity, avoid the game that Japan and India and Australia are playing. That's starting to change. It's starting to change because of Chinese behavior. And I argue in the chapter that the COVID response shook the Moon Jae-in, ruling Moon Jae-in government to an extent where it opened up more room for debating how to handle China. And the number of Koreans who say they don't trust China now is almost as high as the number of Japanese and higher than the number of Americans. So the trend lines in Korea are going to be, I think, towards steadily more alignment with with the with the other maritime powers, but slowed by geography, by North Korea, which is acting up, of course. So all different, but the trend lines generally the same. China is bringing out these antibodies uh, because of its coercive behavior.
0: So Ashley, what about the other countries uh, covered in the volume? Uh, what are some of the maybe overarching trends or themes that we see in in this in this area?
1: So I think Mike got it right. Uh, Geography and history shape countries' view of their interests. But there is much greater diversity with respect to the realities of US-China competition when one moves outside Northeast Asia. We've got to be clear about this. There is no doubt that all the parties in Asia, every country, thinks that U.S.-China competition is now the most important geopolitical reality in their universe, right? There's no debate about that fact. That is a sea change. And I think Trump's policies clarified that reality. That is, he clearly admitted that China is a strategic competitor and that this would be the defining rivalry sort of of the next few decades. And I think other countries in Asia have absorbed that fact, but their reactions vary. So you get on one hand a country like Russia, which is fundamentally unmoved because it was already operating on the assumption that there was US-China rivalry and that only opened opportunities for Russia with respect to China. So there was no fundamental shift in, in Russia's position. On the other hand, you see uh, two examples of quite dramatic shifts, and that is India and Australia, where India, because of its own crises with China and the troubles uh, along the Sino-Indian border, and Australia, because of just blatant Chinese victimization and cussedness, finally moves to treat China as a strategic competitor, doubles down, On the alliance relationship with the United States and with Japan and with India through the Quad, and begins to become part of an activation balancing coalition in the face of China's rise. Now New Zealand does not show the same attitude, at least to to the degree that Australia has, with respect to US-China competition. But even New Zealand is drifting in the direction of the United States, given the realities of Chinese assertiveness. Now, two interesting cases, which are middling cases to me, are Southeast Asia and the small island states of Oceania. Both these regions, for different reasons, are seeking either to escape U.S.-China competition because they see their relations with China as actually providing economic benefits, lucrative economic benefits that could be at risk if U.S.-China competition gets out of hand. And so you have two sort of responses that are at odds with one another. One response is to prevent the competition from impinging upon their own economic and political interests. And in Southeast Asia, this takes the form of real anxiety about the breakdown in international trade, real anxiety about the prospect of being forced to choose between the United States and China, and in Oceania, it takes the form of countries actually exploiting US-China competition to secure certain benefits for themselves. In other words, they become more attractive recipients of competitive aid from both sides. So when you look outside of Northeast Asia, there is an interesting diversity, but I think there is a the broad unifying theme across Asia is that US-China competition is real It has consequences Uh, and depending on the specific country's history, its proximity to China, its trade relations and its broader interests, the degree with which it responds to this competition demonstrates interesting variance.
0: Yeah, and when it comes to the U.S.-China competition and how the U.S. has approached uh, its strategy and its policy over the past few years, We've noted that the Trump administration does deserve some credit, despite all of the other challenges, the tumultuous developments uh, during those four years, for identifying and really setting down in stone that we are in this competition with China now, as the Biden administration has come in, you know we didn't see a reversal necessarily of of that acknowledgement. It has been a continuation that the U.S. Uh, has a real need to compete with China in certain areas, but we we haven't really seen thus far from the administration clearly defined contours of what that competition entails. Um, so, from both of you, how should this administration begin to approach a more coherent strategy or or set of guidelines uh, towards the areas that the U.S. should compete in versus those it it might cooperate in or at the very least uh, limit their adversarial approach
1: toward? Let me start by saying just a few words about the Trump administration and competition with China to begin with, and then I can say something about Biden. I think Trump got... The fact of U.S.-China competition, right, and the decision to come out clearly affirming that reality was long overdue. I mean, many administrations struggled with this going back to the days uh, when uh, Mike and I worked for George W. Bush. We feared this possibility. We tried to avert it. 20 years later, I don't think we can avert it. And Trump fessed up to it. And I think that was a advance. But I don't think he got the terms of the competition right. And certainly in his policies, I think we lost the opportunity to define the contours of that competition specifically. And this is where I am quite critical about, you know, his trade-driven approach to the competition and particularly the tariff wars that ensued, as opposed to the focus that should have been on the structural aspects of the competition. There's also a second thing about the Trump era that I found rather interesting, that just as Trump was attempting to redefine a new U.S. engagement with the world, he was pushed right into the same groove that the U.S. has always been in, which is when you are involved in great power competition, you have to behave like a great power. And so there was, some, uh, there was a tension between Trump and his vision of what the U.S. ought to do and the Trump administration's vision of what the U.S. ought to do. And thankfully for us, I think the Trump administration's vision won out, which is we went back to strengthening our alliances. We went back to focusing on rebuilding our military capabilities. And we began to put in place a larger institutional architecture in the Indo-Pacific, designed to deal with the rise of China. Now, all this is very far removed from President Trump's initial belief that the U.S. could live splendidly all by itself and everybody else was just leeching off us. So, part dependency and structural realities, in a sense, forced the United States to to regain its composure, as it were, and maintain the most sensible strategy of preserving, you know, a liberal order that serves its interests. And so that is something that is important to remember when we think of, you know, the tumultuousness that, no matter what the preferences or the personal preferences of the president, Abinicio might have been, by the time the administration ends its term, the U.S. really behaves like a conventional great power, and in many ways, sensibly so. So the Trump administration
2: historians will credit with inaugurating or acknowledging, really, that we are in an era of strategic competition with China. And I think they deserve credit for focusing like a laser, not the president himself. He, he is famously undisciplined and unfocused, but the senior national security officials focusing like a laser on competition with China and bringing urgency to that task. Where they succeeded, the Biden administration has picked up the same efforts and amplified them. For example, taking the US, Japan, Australia, India quad from a foreign minister's meeting to a summit with concrete deliverables, or AUKUS, which you know all the former Trump national security officials hailed this Australia, US, UK alignment, not just around building nuclear powered submarines, but supply chain security intelligence and broader stability in the region. That was continuity, not change from Trump to Biden. There are areas where Biden has continued Trump's policies to the detriment of American interests, and particularly in trade. The Biden administration has essentially no economic strategy for Asia, Uh, beyond some efforts at controlling technology transfers to China. The administration has promised a new Indo-Pacific economic framework, but the contents really, I mean, the issue set is there, digital trade, supply chains, and so forth. But it's all nouns with no verbs, and nobody has yet said we're going to negotiate a digital trade agreement or we're going to form a coalition. On, there's no action. It's all just these are themes that any, you know, anybody could have picked out. And the reason is the administration is even more divided internally than Trump was on these issues. And the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, where I started my career, actually, is populated at senior levels by anti-trade protectionists. In the White House, a lot of people who focus on the economic agenda are more concerned about issues like climate change or a middle policy, uh, you know, a so called uh, strategy for the middle class than competing with China. So, very either opposed or diffuse efforts. Secretary of Commerce Raimundo, Kurt Campbell at the White House, uh, the State Department, Undersecretary for Economic Affairs are pushing forward, but there's growing anxiety in Asia with China's bid to join CPTPP and fill the vacuum left by the U.S., which Japan and Australia will hold off for a while. But if we don't have something to compete with, then the geopolitical political arguments will lose out to the pocketbook issues for companies that say, look, China's here, America, we're not sure of. So it's a really critical time. And in the coming weeks, the administration will roll out a series of strategic documents, none of them as coherent as Strategic Asia, of course, but uh, because they're being written by the government. And as Ashley will remember well, that's a painful process. There's a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, the national security strategy from the White House, the national defense strategy from the Pentagon, the nuclear policy review on nuclear weapons strategy. These are all being written with different priorities in mind. And my guess is the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and the Pentagon's national defense strategy will be pretty coherent on China, unless Russia invades uh, Ukraine. And then the Pentagon strategy is gonna be very confused. Are we pivoting Asia or not, right? Whereas the national security strategy, I expect will be a bit of a, you know, it's gonna be the Biden campaign as a national security document. It's gonna be 10 different priorities that constituencies care about. So I'm not sure that the coming, weeks will add much clarity to the strategy. Unfortunately, we'll see. Individual parts and individ- like the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy will be quite strong, I'm sure, because among the Asia hands, whether it's defense or state or the NSC, there's almost complete uh, agreement on what we need to do. But there are other priorities in this administration and yet another one with Ukraine that are going to make it challenging. Fortunately, there is clarity, I think, in Delhi, Canberra, Tokyo, and the team keeps moving forward Um, which is good for us, but we're going to have to, as a country, get together uh, some serious strategy on economic statecraft and prioritizing defense. How are we going to deter Russia and China at the same time? How are we going to do that? I don't think the administration is ready with an answer, unless they're going to increase defense spending, which I don't see happening significantly. Well, we'll see what happens in the midterms. You know, our politics are a little bit hard to predict. So that's sort of how I see this unfolding. But strategic competition, absolutely. There's a broad consensus about that. And that's quite an achievement for both Trump and Obama, excuse me, Trump and Biden, in terms of their geopolitical and strategic legacies.
1: I concur with everything that Mike said about the shortcomings of the Biden administration's economic strategies, particularly in Asia. And I think that is a huge weakness, Mm -hmm. because particularly in Asia, we cannot sustain uh, deep engagement and balancing of China on the strength of military security alone, particularly at a time when there are increasing questions about the military effectiveness of the United States, uh, particularly with respect to power projection against Chinese opposition and so on and so forth. So a deepened success in Asia will require an economic component, which thus far has been missing. And it's been missing entirely, as Mike pointed out, because domestic politics once again uh, dominates smart decisions on national security in this question. The broader issue of the contours of US China competition still remains. And I want to make two or three points here. First, it is very important to understand the paradox that a durable economic relationship with China is essential for successful US competition with China. I think people often tend to think that competition with China means that we need to pursue an agenda of comprehensive decoupling. I think that is not only fallacious, it's counterproductive and just plain wrong because it will undermine our competitiveness and our effectiveness to compete. So we do need a durable economic relationship with China. When we look at issues of decoupling, I think they need to be very narrow and very targeted. And that decoupling should focus primarily in areas of national defense and technological dominance. Those are the two areas where we need to be able to maintain our eminence because so much flows from it. And to the degree that decoupling is necessary to ensure that eminence, decoupling makes perfect sense but an across-the-board disengagement with China I don't think is either wise or or effective. What should be the goals of the competition? Richard Fontaine had a wonderful piece a couple of days ago where he argues that the goals of the competition must be to prevent China from revising the liberal order. I agree with that, but I'm not sure that is completely specified. My view is that the goal of US-China competition must be to prevent China from being able to successfully challenge the United States militarily in Asia and globally. If we can protect American military primacy in the region, all the rest follows. The order will take care of itself as long as we are seen as effective guarantors of the order. And so I would put my money on the issues that Mike put his finger on which is you must be able to dominate militarily if you are to be a credible hegemonic power. And if you can do that, then you have created space for virtuous interdependence to flourish. You've created space for your alliance system to be effective. And you have created space for your ideas to flourish beyond just Asia into the world. And so if I were to advise the Biden administration, I would say, think of U.S.-China competition through multiple lenses. Mm -hmm. But the most important goal that you ought to be pursuing is really to make certain that the military foundations of U.S. hegemony are essentially protected.
2: This is going to be a, a long slog. And Kennan is, George F. Kennan is credited with being the architect of containment. But actually, the strategy of containment diverged quite a bit from what Kennan originally conceived of. And in my view, he was actually not a great strategist in terms of um, how he prevented Soviet hegemony in uh, the Western Pacific and uh, and and Europe. Really, the insights that Kennan had that were so important were about the nature of Soviet behavior. And his long telegram, his Mr. X article, were most significant because they said, this is who the Soviets are. This is what they will try to do. These are their strengths. These are their weaknesses. We are just sort of getting to that point in the American strategic debate and in our discussions with allies and with partners like India. We're just starting to define the nature of Chinese behavior. And there is a remarkable consensus about that in in the US and, and, and increasingly in Europe, and of course, in places like Japan and India and Australia. So that's the first step. And when when we know that, we'll better be able to define where we have to decouple, where we have to push back, where we have to take risks. And the Trump and Biden administrations have I- injected a, a, a an appetite for risk. China has dominated for a decade that debate: who's willing to risk more? And China. The answer was China. People people thought. I think. Both Trump's administration and now Biden have accepted that we need to take more risk. I worry a little bit that with the challenge of the midterms, with, with the Ukraine crisis, we may signal less willingness in the second year of, of the Biden administration to take risk, to defend this uh, liberal order, to defend our allies. But I think that if that does happen, you will find that Congress pushes back very, very hard. So our system has a way of correcting itself. And it's our strategy is sloppy, it's iterative, it's dysfunctional. But, you know, as Winston Churchill reportedly said, you can count on the Americans to get all the wrong choices before they finally make the right choice. And we are lurching towards that. And it matters a lot that we are aligning so closely with so many major powers. You look at the top 10 economies of the world, China's driven seven of them into the American's arms. You know, Italy, Germany, maybe not, but India, Japan, uh, France, I would argue, the UK. The, The British stance on China is completely different from where it was seven years ago. So we have some big, powerful friends and allies that will help us through our dysfunctionality, because in my view, uh, Ashley, none of them are writing us off yet. Thank God they know our they know our our tragic comedy a little too well. And they're they're sticking with us. And shaping America is a key part of their strategy for shaping China, which is going to discipline us, I think, as we go through all this.
1: And I think it makes good sense for us to vote that she gets a third term. Because as long as these trends continue, it just makes our task a little easier.
0: Well, listen guys, I've really enjoyed this discussion, and getting into uh, the conversation here at the end's been really fantastic. I want to wrap it up now and just ask, are any concluding thoughts, anything else that you think is really critical uh, that our listeners take away from the volume or the themes that we're addressing here?
1: Well. The- Only thought I would leave you with is that, you know, a great power like the United States cannot afford to focus so much on its inward politics to the neglect of the rest of the world, hoping that the rest of the world will wait for it to show renewed attention. We have to be willing to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so I commend all the things that the Biden administration is doing with respect to renewing the domestic compact. But it cannot be done to the exclusion of very activist international engagement. That strategy has considerable risks that will come back to haunt us.
2: I agree with that. You know, I was recruited to do the first uh, Strategic Asia in 2000, in year 2000. And I got out of it by joining the uh, NSC and going to work uh, on policy. But my staff at the NSC all read Strategic Asia when it came out every year because it was a a rigorous scholarly work with direct um, implications for policy and also because the way the chapters the, the book's always been designed it gives agency to multiple actors in asia this is not a u.s china volume this is this tells you the strategic trajectory of all the players in asia and strategic competition is a, is going to be a team sport and there're going to be places like southeast asia that are frankly contested geopolitically and that comes through in this in this volume every year and particularly this year. So I think it's really gonna be an important contribution yet again. And congratulate you at NPR and, and Ashley for pulling it together with so much success for what is this, the 20th, 21st in a row? This is the 20th, 20th yeah. anniversary. Sorry I skipped out of the first one, but you've made me
1: pay back several times <laughs> since. So I was glad to be part of it. It's been such a pleasure to pay to have you pay us back, Mike. <laughs>
0: Yes, we're very glad. We're very glad. Well, fantastic. Thank you both once again for joining us to discuss this newest Strategic Asia volume, Strategic Asia 2122 Navigating Tumultuous Times in the Indo Pacific. For our listeners, be sure to check out this volume on the NBR website under the Strategic Asia program. And we'll catch you next time on Asia Insight. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.